What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com, and I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and we're going to be interviewing Paul Leonard Morgan. Now, Paul is the composer, or one of the composers, for Tales from the Loop, a show on Amazon. It's actually based off of a book of art. So, for this project, Paul was joined by Phil Glass to help collaborate and create the sound, or this special music. So, the two of us sat down to discuss his work on Tales from the Loop. Now, if you like these interviews and these conversations, you'll definitely want to check out filmmakeru.com. That's filmmaker at the letter u.com to check out courses by the top craftspeople in the industry who are currently working. Some of the courses include the colors from Mad Max, Eric Whip, talking about how he does his work. We have a multi-Emmy award-winning editor for Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, who talks about editing and his techniques. And we have Martin Scorsese's Oscar award-winning sound designer, Eugene Garrity. Now you can check that out at filmmakeru.com. That's filmmaker, the letter U.com. Now with all that said, here's my interview with Paul Leonard Morgan. I guess to start off, for Tales from the Loop, where did you get inspiration for the sound of the show? The visuals, genuinely. And everyone goes, I can't just get inspired by visuals. I was like, have you seen Simon's drawings? I don't know if you'd seen them before watching the series or not, but I looked at them. They were sitting on Philip's piano. I'd, I'd flown over to New York and I was sat in Philip's studio and we didn't have any visuals at that stage. So they literally just sent over some of Simon's pictures and Philip's assistant had printed them out and there they were on the piano. And I was, These are incredible. I mean, it, it doesn't look like a picture. It looks like a real life thing, which I think is so absolutely wonderful about it. That's what I love about the show as well. It's like, well, it could be real or it could not be real. It's not really about the technology. It's not about the sci-fi. It it just is. So, yeah, Philip and I were just looking at the visuals on this piano and started imagining robots. (laughs) It's like, well, what would your robot sound like, Philip? Well, I think it would be this. What would your robot sound like, Paul? (laughs) So, yes, we looked at those images and we just got so inspired by it. And it's just so beautiful and heartfelt. So literally, we just started playing at the piano. And Philip was writing these chords. I thought, oh, that's beautiful. And here, how about this cello line over the top and so on? And yeah, we just started that way, really. Well, that kind of jumps into one of the questions I had, which is like, how did you develop or figure out how to work with Philip? And this probably comes from, because I'm obviously not a composer, but it comes from like that sort of image of the composer working away by themselves, figuring out all the little pieces. But here you are working with another composer. So how did you guys, what was that working relationship like? So I don't know what other composers do when they collaborate with another composer because I've never done it before. So I'm sure there's a proper, inverted commas, way of doing it. But Philip said, look, I've collaborated with lots of artists before. But he said, I don't really think I've collaborated with many composers before. And you can see him trying to actually think. I'm obviously kind of very wary about your Philip. I don't want to bastardize any of your ideas, so I don't want to destroy anything. He's like, no, 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 not at all. He said, I love your melodies and I love this, so how can we work this in together? But it became, I think you can think about things too much, and it became this really organic process in the end where I had been over there for the day with Philip, just kind of getting to know you. Um, I've met him a couple of times anyway. But they're really just talking about the project. And then I flew back to my studio in L.A. And then he sent over some ideas and written down on manuscript paper. And then I would kind of look at those ideas and they'd started shooting by that stage. Now, Mark was up with Nathaniel. So we'd just 
started writing some music that we sent up to them so that they could have listened to some kind of MIDI mock-ups while they were shooting just to give them an idea and to make sure we we're going on the right track, etc. So I would listen to Philip's chords and then just say, I'd then go, okay, well, yes, I really like that. And to begin with, I was quite tentative about it and kind of sending it back and saying, look, I've changed this bar. Is this all right? And he's like, oh, yeah. Well, if you're going to change that, then you might as well change this one. I was like, okay, well, great. Well, if you're liking what I'm doing, then how about this? And then gradually, you know, he would start taking my melodies, adapting those melodies, putting those over the top. I would start taking what he had adapted and changing that. So in the end, it became this really fluid, organic process, as I say, where it's like we can't really tell who's done what because neither of us could actually tell you who's done what in the end you know we've just started writing a load of music started putting it to picture see what's working what's not and then gradually taking those themes and they develop more as the series progresses and i think one of the things that's wonderful about the series is that every single film is almost unique there's recurring motifs that we have coming back but as the film progresses through the seasons so does the music and the instrumentation almost one's i would say a bigger sounding episode than maybe episode two which was stripped back to a quartet and then three we started adding a few more instruments with that so they're all in the same i would say genre but they're all quite distinct sounding films when you watch them as a standalone you don't tend to get that much melodies that come around except for the loop itself whenever there's magic or whenever you got cold yeah well you just answered two of my questions oh i'm sorry <laughs> no 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 because i was thinking like one of my questions was because i watched the series and i was like the only thing that felt the same was the loop yeah and everything else felt unique so i was going to ask because you've worked on other shows so how do you keep a show where it's not doing this unique thing for every episode how do you keep fresh for each episode because i think this is and it sounds such bullshit when people say it, but it really is. It's just such a unique thing. I've never seen anything like this. I said to Nathaniel, I would just do this forever. I've adored every single moment. of It's so rare that you get a partnership. When I say partnership, not just me and Philip, but me and Philip and Nathaniel and Mark and even the post-production team. It was so close-knit. It was like a really small family and where everybody is so passionate about the visual effects, about the music, about every single note. Nathaniel was living and breathing every single note by the end. And he would come to recording sessions and go, how about we just change this bit or we just change this bit? And in the end, even the players would be getting the same players because they were just bringing themselves their sound to this soundtrack. So if you do another show, for example, as opposed to a film, if you do another show, a lot of the time they'll just start chopping up some of your music and going, well, I put it in here, what do you think? And sometimes it works and you're obviously going to kind of smooth those over, but it's great as a basis for it. Whereas for this, we just didn't use any temp music. We just started doing our own thing. So it was literally just a case of, all right, well, they've now got episode one's music. So they're now going to feed that into episode two and then they'll feed that into episode three. But really, when you think about these things intellectually, it's like, well, okay, well, look, we're going to write a theme for the loop. And it makes sense for that to keep coming back intellectually because the loop is always there underground. It's omnipresent in every single episode. That's what the whole town is about. But in actual fact, the films themselves aren't really about, I don't think, and this is, this is where I always kind of differ from producers and directors. I just have my own vision of them. But it's like, I don't see the films as being really about the loop that much. It's about human interaction and connectivity and these stories that happen. And sure, they happen because of what happens at the loop, but it's not about how it happens. It just happens. You know, if someone happens to have this thing that makes the entire world be still, except for yeah, when you're wearing the bracelet, that's episode three, or episode six with Gaddis, where Gaddis is then finds this hole and goes down. But it's used as a device to tell a story. So for me, they're eight individual films, and obviously they're part of a larger series, and it's nice if you watch them in order, but it's not essential. And I think so that's the way that we kind of took it as well, look, we've got this loop theme, so let's use that. 
but each individual Gaddis has his own theme. So yeah, so you've got every single episode which is treated as an individual film, and then with a little sprinkling of the loop, kind of you know, for good measure, which also helps keep it, I think, grounded. It gives you that, as an audience, that sense of comfort when you hear a little motif. So you kind of know what you're watching without being signposted too much. Now, one of the things I noticed when I was doing the research for this is that, so your older, like not your older work, but your other work can be really, as you say on your website, orchestra meets electronica. And this, I'm not sure what kind of technology you use, but it felt more stripped down and more basic instruments in a sense. And even when I was watching the stuff on YouTube, you were demoing on the piano. So was this like a huge departure from your usual approach in terms of the instrument choices? It's so funny. No, it's just that a lot of people know me for kind of my electronic work. So I've done films like Limitless and Dread and so on, which are pretty hardcore electronica. But my background is I studied at the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama, and I was writing clarinet concertos there when I was 18. So it's almost come full circle. I studied there, worked with orchestras, and then I started doing stream arrangements for bands, and then I started producing bands, and then the sounds from those bands I started taking into soundtracks. And then I kind of got known as the go-to electronica guy. <laughs> but meanwhile, I've still got that classical vibe going underneath. And I love doing kind of a mishmash of kind of classical and drums. And I started working with Errol Morris about three years ago, I think, maybe four. And all of my soundtracks for Errol were kind of, I say classical, but you know what I mean, kind of a classical vibe. And it was kind of classical with a little bit of a kind of twist of synth, but mostly it was quartet and I did a soundtrack called Wormwood for Errol and that was very kind of quartet heavy with some twisted electric cello for when the guy's going off his head on drugs but it was mostly classical so and I think that was why I ended up working with Philip on this was the fact that well look the two of them have worked with Errol Morris before Philip's done all of his early films Paul's done all of his latest films they've obviously got a kind of similar sensibility when it comes to that kind of thing and let's see what happens I think that's it I and mean, Philip said that as well it's like it doesn't just sound like, oh, this is Philip Glass, this is Philip Glass. It doesn't just sound like it's, oh, it's Paul, it's Paul, it's Paul. It's some weird fusion of the two of them, which sounds like, I don't know, it's in the genre of both of us, but not quite. So you're saying about kind of doing the mock-ups on the piano and stuff. There's no electronica in any of this soundtrack. So it's all real instruments. And the real instruments, some of them have been used to create slightly weird electronica sounds. Um, episode 7, there's some weird stuff. But yeah, it's all real instruments, which is what makes it so beautiful. It's really stripped back. And it's just weird. Like I was saying yesterday to Mark, director of One, the weird thing is so many people have started doing covers of the theme for it. I got sent this accordion version yesterday, and someone else has done a beautiful guitar lady version of it. So many people on the piano saying, hey, can we get the sheet music? And I tell you, it's so touching because we started off you know, our initial discussions were always we wanted to write a soundtrack that was timeless. And we wanted to write a soundtrack which people would listen to out with Tales from the Loop. And Nathaniel, the showrunner, was very adamant about that as well. He was like, look, we've got so much room for music here, so much space. Music's going to be an integral part of it. I want there to be so many melodies and I want it to be beautiful and I want it to be something that people would listen to. And you realize Amazon released an hour of the music set to some scenes on loop. So some weird gifts. It's on YouTube. But it's had nearly a million hits. And people literally just play it on loop. And so many people have said, this is so relaxing. This is so beautiful. This is some of the most exquisite music we've ever heard. And the two for a film score to have that effect on someone is really cool. Because normally, you know, it's a lot of sound design or this or that. Now, I guess you don't usually get that kind of feedback from an audience, do you? Uh, normally, it's, oh, the music's too loud. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I mean, you do get feedback. And again, it's for different reasons. Like, my soundtrack to Dread, it gets used a lot by gaming people. 
so gamers tend to use the Dread soundtrack when they're coding or when they're playing games. And I don't know why, but it just becomes part of the zeitgeist then that they go, oh, it's got this reaction with a certain crowd of people. So then, okay, well, that's really nice. Whereas then people, I think Wormwood was another one where I had a lot of people want it and Netflix don't really release soundtracks, which is slightly annoying. So I'm like, really sorry, I can't send this to you, I'll get killed. But I was speaking to someone about this the other day and the nicest thing that you can have as an artist is when music touches you. And I don't mean that from an ego point of view, but from a point of view of when you've written something that just emotionally connects with someone. And I remember about 10 years ago, I'd written an album and I remember getting an email from Australia. Bizarre because I just remember specifically that it was from Australia and it was, okay, now you get 400 emails a day and it's like, oh, bollocks, whether it's work or whatever else. Whereas this was just, hey, I've just heard your track. Never heard of you before. I found you on the internet. I've just heard this track. Just to let you know I was so moved by this track. I was like, my God, the power of music when you do something for you rather than for someone else. That means almost more to me than getting a gold disc or something. It's really nice. So the same way, like this is the first time and Again, the producers as well were saying this. They said they've never known this to happen like this, where the music's just obviously caught a caught a mood or whatever else. And I think during this lockdown as well, people are kind of watching Tales from the Loop. And I've said to everyone, like, don't binge it because it leaves you emotionally drained by the end of it. So I said, for me, I find watching one episode at the end of every single one I would just feel kind of, oh my goodness. And I think lots of people have found that the pace of it is just in complete contrast to what your normal films are. Yeah, what's well, methodical. Yeah, yeah, completely. And this is the antithesis of it. So by the end of it, I think Nathaniel said someone had described it to him the other day as I switched the TV off after an hour, wonder what the hell that was about. And I sit there thinking for an hour. <laughs> and he said, you know what, I'll take it. You know, if it's had that effect on someone, good or bad, but just the fact that it's made someone sit and think. How often does that happen in filmmaking these days? Hardly at all. And that's one of the things that I miss like that's why I loved Tales from the Root. That's why I love like any of Denae Villeneuve stuff where it forces you to sit and think. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Yeah. Also, I was just going to say, if you think about it, these films are created based on Simon's wonderful artwork. Just as our music was inspired by this artwork, you came back full circle. So, well, how did we come up with the ideas to begin with? I can't think of it. Maybe there is. I don't know, but I can't think of a time where that's happened. Where it's like, well, that picture's beautiful. This inspires me to go and write a film those eight pictures of you or whatever you know but just to actually be inspired by those pictures to then go and write a series on it it's such a unique beast it's great now in film like you had mentioned earlier in our interview that you know it's a collaborative beast and you guys had a really collaborative relationship between you the director and philip but i'm also wondering what your relationship with sound designers might be since you're sort of interplaying between the the sound design and the music so a lot of the time you get separate spotting sessions at the start of it where you go through with the director and say, hey, we're going to have music in here, music out there. So it's the director and the editor. And a lot of the time you'll have one for music and you'll have one for sound design. And I mean, an example of that is in episode one, there is, and again, I don't know how many of the episodes you've seen, but in episode one, you've got the rubbing of the glass that she does. And it makes this kind of, if you picture your fingers through on the crystal glass, it makes that kind of weird sound. So we literally started, or they would send us those various sounds so that we could then incorporate those into the music and make it exactly the same key so that things aren't clashing with each other. And again, you know, I've never had that before. And then I'd say, look, is it possible to detune that sound by a semitone? Because then it's going to work a lot better. And then they're going, well, what the hell's a semitone? <laughs> they're having to work it out on the sound design. And I think the ultimate example of the sound design, which Nathaniel will be able to tell you about way better than me, but we would sit there on the sound stage and Nathaniel is 
talking about bird song and the bird sounds. And it was that intricate that he was going, no, it wouldn't make that sound. There's only three, it wasn't a woodpecker, but whatever it was, there's only three places in the world where you hear those. And one of those is where this is set. So they literally had to go and find this woodpecker sound. And there's only two recordings of them in the entire world. <laughs> so, I mean, I think as a testament to Nathaniel, you know, everything is so intricate. Everything is so perfectly paid attention to. Again, I've just never heard of something going into that much detail. So yeah, so sound design and music really, really did go hand in hand. And I think not just sound design, but the use of negative space. Now, I have a couple more questions and they're just sort of fun questions. One is, one of the things I, I always like is sort of discovering new bands or sounds that I haven't really heard before. And so being a composer, what would be a band or a musician or a composer that you've heard that people need to hear about more? As far as a band or as far as a composer? It can be either one, whichever one you think people should know about. Because, yeah, I was going to say, because they're twofold, because more people in the world need to know about Mogwai, which is a band in Glasgow. They scored some films, but not enough people know them. They're just a bunch of really good Glasgow lads. And they've got a fairly solid following, but they're not worldwide, I would say, known. And I freaking adore them. So Mogwai is a band to go and listen to because they're just great, but they're fucking dark. <laughs> <laughs> It's walls and walls of guitars kind of building and building and building, but they're absolutely ace. So I adore them. And as far as a composer goes, I mean, I always say Clint Mansell just because I adore him as a composer. I don't know him at all, but I think he's pretty well recognized already. So I don't think he needs a thumbs up from me. (laughs) (laughs) So, and then my last question that I like to ask everyone is, what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? (laughs) Now, now you're not allowed to ask that because then that gets punished and they go, oh my God, he watches that? What the hell? The guilty pleasure would be something like Enemy of the State. I love those kind of films okay. where you're just immersed in it. And it's not necessarily, I say this with all due respect, but it's not necessarily the world's greatest film. But I love it where you're just immersed in a film and just go, oh, my God. And I remember sitting with my dad watching it. And dad goes, this could so easily be real. And you're <laughs> like, yeah, dad, it's fine. And now you kind of go, oh, my God. So right. Uh as a guilty pleasure, I like films where I can just switch off and it leaves you kind of feeling slightly paranoid at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for letting me interview. You are more than welcome. And I hope that the sunshine comes out soon where you are. <laughs> thank you. Have a good one out in LA. All right. And you take care, man. Thanks. Bye. So that was my interview with Paul. I'd like to thank Paul for allowing me to interview him. I'd like to thank Amazon for setting up this interview. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.